0: In his new book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, futurist, technologist, and CEO of GigaOM, Byron Rees, makes the case that technology has reshaped humanity just three times in history. 100,000 years ago, we harnessed fire, which led to language. 10,000 years ago, we developed agriculture, which led to cities and warfare. And 5,000 years ago, we invented the wheel and writing, which led to the nation-state. He tells us that we are now on the doorstep of a fourth age brought about by two technologies, AI and robotics. His book provides an essential background on how we got to this point and how, rather than what, we should think about the topics we'll soon all be facing, such as machine consciousness, automation, changes in employment, creative computers, radical life extension, artificial life, AI ethics, the future of warfare, superintelligence, and the implications of extreme prosperity. By asking questions like, are you a machine? And could a computer feel anything? Reese cultivates discussion at the cutting edge in robotics and AI, and provides a framework by which we can all understand, discuss, and act on the issues of the fourth age and how they'll transform humanity. Byron Rees is the CEO and publisher of the industry-leading technology research company, GigaOM, and the founder of several high-tech companies. He has spent the better part of his life exploring the interplay of technology with human history. Reese has patents, obtained and pending, in disciplines as varied as crowdsourcing, content creation, and psychographics. The website he has launched, which covers the intersection of technology, business, science, and history— have together received over a billion visitors, and he is the author of the acclaimed book Infinite Progress, How Technology and the Internet Will End Ignorance, Disease, Hunger, Poverty, and War. And today he joins me to talk about his new book, The Fourth Age. Hello, my name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Byron Reese, who's agreed to talk with us about his new book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. Byron, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Carrie Lynn, thank you for having me.
0: First, maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself, the companies you're associated with, and how you came to work in your field.
1: Well, uh, I'm a publisher of uh, GigaOM, which is a technology research company, and I guess I came to work in my field because uh, when I graduated uh, from university in the early '90s, um, I looked around and and technology seemed to be the, this thing that was going to be the you know the juggernaut that drove the world for the next several decades. Technology is really kind of this really cool thing. It it multiplies what people are able to do. It, it's 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 almost like magic, and I knew whatever I did, I wanted to be I wanted to be involved in in that, and so um, I've always been with, with startups and started companies and always with technology.
0: Fantastic! Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the '90s because I feel like um, that was a point in time where it seemed like technology was something you could opt into whereas I don't think people would have that perspective now. It seems like a given. You have to learn. You have to get involved. Otherwise, the world passes you by.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I, I would I would say I never thought about it that way, but I think you're entirely right.
0: Okay. Well, tell us how you came to write this book in particular.
1: I got interested in um, the story of competing narratives. So you you hear people on both sides of of the artificial intelligence so i th- i think with regards to artificial intelligence there's three big questions uh there's what's it going to do to jobs and uh is it something we should be afraid of is it going to like go rogue and maybe less big but still kind of interesting is can a machine ever be alive can it be conscious <laughs> and the interesting thing about these three questions is People have such radically different views about how to answer them. So with regards to jobs, just to take one of them, you have some people who say, you know, we're going to enter this permanent Great Depression, and a lot of people won't find work. And then you find people who say, ha, 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 dream on. Uh, Machines will be able to do everything better than people. They'll write better poetry. Or you have people who say, look, this is no different than any other Technology that people just use to increase their own productivity, and we're not going to have any unemployment. And 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 you get these like radically different views from, you know, legendary giants in their field, with with regards to should we be afraid of AI? You've got Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates saying they're worried about it, and then you have people who think that position is so ridiculous, like uh, Zuckerberg, you know, who says that's just irresponsible, is I think how he describes it. Mm-hmm. So I got interested in these questions as a just a person trying to sort out why do all of these smart, informed people have such dramatically different views on these questions. And so what I figured out is it not that they somehow know something that other people don't know, it's that they believe things, that in the end, these questions... Boil down to a belief system about the nature of reality and the nature of humanity and whether we're machines or not, and all of these other kinds of philosophical questions. They're not really even technical questions. And so I wanted to write a book that explored it. And because of that, uh, the book never really says what I think about any of those questions. It isn't, I, I didn't want to just be another person with an opinion I want everybody else to agree with. What I wanted to do was ask my reader a series of questions, and then kind of work through the implications of those answers. And and so to be more of a trusted guide than just a guy with an opinion. Uh, And so I wrote a book that's kind of how do you think about these technologies?
0: Right. Yeah, I would agree. That's what it seems like to me, too. You've kind of laid the groundwork for having a productive discussion, maybe between people who don't necessarily come at it in the same way. So, um, yeah, I think it would be fair to say that this book is dealing with big ideas, uh, as you've kind of already alluded to. And uh, to put those grand themes in context, you begin by giving a very broad overview of history in order to describe what you see as the four ages of human history as defined by major technological advancements. So let's start with that. Can you tell us about these four ages?
1: Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that like other books – are out at the same time that are the fourth this or the fourth that like the world is awash in these fourths. And so it can be a little confusing. What, what I looked at, what I thought was interesting is over the course of time that, that humans have been humans, we've used technology and we've used it to, like I said earlier, multiply what we're able to do. But sometimes a technology comes along. It's so big and so profound that it alters the trajectory of the human race forever, forever. Uh, I think the first of these was a technology called speech. And, uh, you know, when, you can't imagine humans today without speech. It's like when we acquired speech, that was our singular ability as a species. It allowed us to coordinate our actions. And that that was, I think, a pivotal turning point. And then I think the second one is when we got agriculture. In and of itself, that isn't, I don't think, the big one. But what happened is agriculture gave us the city because we stopped wandering around. We started building cities. And cities gave us the division of labor. And the division of labor gave us prosperity. And so I think that, um, you know, the the birth of, 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 of prosperity would be the second one. And then I think the third one was two technologies that coincidentally happened at the same time. One is the invention of the wheel. And one is the adventure of write, invention of writing. Um, and what those two technologies did is taken together. They're what you need to have a nation state. And that's why 5,000 years ago, when these two technologies emerged all over the world, just kind of overnight, you had great empires come out of nowhere. You had Mesoamerica, Mesopotamia, the Indus, the Po, because these technologies just kind of came together and they made the moment. And so we had nations after that. And so I think that artificial intelligence and robots are the same kind of thing because in a way we use technology to kind of outsource things we used to do ourselves. So like use writing to outsource memory. Uh, If you think about it, artificial intelligence in a way is outsourcing thought and robots are outsourcing action. And if you, If all of a sudden you build machines that outsource, you know, that take over thinking and acting, then you have a very interesting question about what are people for? Like, what, 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 what then?
0: So you talk also about uh, what you call three foundational questions, which you say are philosophical questions rather than technical ones, and uh, that how these questions are answered, or that how these questions are answered, will determine whether sentient robots, for example, will ever be technologically possible. So tell us what you mean by that.
1: So the three questions that I pose my reader. Um, the first one is, "What are you?" And you get, they're all multiple choice. So your three answers are you are a machine and everything in you just obeys the laws of physics. Uh, The second choice you have is that you're an animal and that's like your body is mechanistic, but you have this property, which is life, which may not be mechanistic. And then the third choice is that you're a human, that somehow, yes, you're an animal, but you have something extra. Like you have consciousness, or you have a soul, or you have something that makes you different. Uh, that's the first question. I'll breeze through the next two. The second one is, what is the nature of reality? It's an old debate about monism versus dualism. are there Is everything just atoms, or are there are there these other things which are mental states that have an equally valid reality, like like pain? And then the third question is, what is the self? Like, that voice you hear in your head, that that you, like, what is that? And there are three choices for that. Brain scientists say it's just a trick of the brain. It's this clever trick the brain learned where all the different parts of the brain put you, reason in a way that um, – they, they integrate all your sensory inputs, sound and sight and all of that. They integrate them into one whole experience, and that gives you the illusion of being you. The second choice is that it's something that's emergent, which is uh, a, a poorly understood – emergence is a poorly understood concept whereby the whole of something takes on characteristics none of the parts have. So you have a sense of humor, but your cells individually don't. Like, where did that sense of humor come from? And then the third choice is that yourself is your soul or some non-corporeal part of you. And depending on how you answer those. So I think people, I find people in Silicon Valley believe they are machines. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't want to just paint that, you know, the whole peninsula that way. But I, I host a podcast about AI. I have AI experts on it. And out of 70 guests, only four would answer the question that you know, anything other than machine. And that mechanistic view of the world says if we're machines and someday we'll be able to build a mechanical person. And over time, that mechanical person will get better and better and better and better. And that's a view of the world. If on the other hand, we, I, I have on my website like a, a test you take that kind of helps you figure out where you are on that. Uh, if you're one of the 85% of people in the rest of the country that don't believe you're a machine which is what I, what I have found like from the people that have taken it online, then it doesn't stand to reason you can build a mechanical, uh, a mechanical human or mechanical brain. Likewise, you ask specifically about consciousness. Um, so people say we don't know what consciousness is, and that's not exactly right. We know exactly what it is. We just don't know how it comes about. So what it is, is it's the experience of being you. It is the difference between a computer can measure temperature, right? You can feel warmth and that difference, that's consciousness. And that's the thing we don't know how, how we are. If you identify yourself as like something like your soul, uh, then it's unlikely we can manufacture that in a fab. If you think you're, self, for instance, is a trick of the brain, then uh, we can probably build computers that have that same trick. So that's how I set it up. I mean, that's, that's whizzing through it, but that's the basic idea is taking your answers to those three questions and just walking through, what does that mean for jobs? What does that mean for warfare? What does that mean for all of these other things? And the reason I don't weigh in on them, it isn't, because I'm being coy or something like that it's it doesn't really matter whether I think I have a soul or not, it matters whether the reader thinks they have one, so my opinion on what I am is irrelevant. Uh, all that matters is what the reader thinks they are because the reader will already have an opinion about what they are uh, that's not a hard question for them to answer, and my job is to say, well, given that, here's what I think logically follows from it i, I, I I don't believe that anyone should say, well, Elon and Gates and Hawking's are brilliant and they're in technology. Therefore, their opinions are worth more than my opinion. They, they Their opinions matter more. They are more likely to be accurate, like they're smarter or anything like that. I, I, I emphatically reject it. What matters is what you believe. Uh, that's what informs these issues. It isn't some arcane technical knowledge about whether computers can be conscious. It's the simple question of what are we and what is reality?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I I think these are just the most fascinating questions in the uh, area. I mean, they've always been questions in the area of philosophy, but the fact that they are so much a part of the technological discussion these days is, I just think, so interesting. We live in really interesting times, I think.
1: I, I will say something kind of that surprised me, because when I meet people who've read the book, I say, how did you answer the three questions? And they tell me. And then I say, what do you think I think as the writer? And 100% of the time, 100% of the time, uh, they tell me exactly their three answers, Um, which I feel good about, because what, what happens is the arguments I'm making for that position resonate with them and they're like exactly exactly i agree i agree and then the arguments i make for the contrary positions are like yeah whatever i don't buy that i don't buy that so i i I hope it means that i've represented every possible combination of those answers um in a way that people who hold that position say yep he's just like me byron's just like me uh and so far that's been the case, but it's only been like a dozen people I've had that conversation with.
0: Hmm, that's fascinating. Um I I felt like your even-handedness came across to me. I'm not sure I would know what to guess. Oh, I mean, you've already told me that I can't guess. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not sure what I would have guessed had you asked.
1: But... What do you mean I told you you can't guess?
0: Well, No, no just that you, you already set up the punchline in a sense that, that other people were were always guessing the answers that they themselves had. So that's tainted my answer now a little bit, I think. But... But I'm not sure that I would have been able to uh, venture a guess because it really did come across to me as being even-handed.
1: Well, thank you. Like I said, I don't make my opinions uh, – I don't hide them. I host a podcast on the topic where I'm quite opinionated about it. But that would be the appropriate venue for, for me to say what my, where I am. Uh, Interesting.
0: All right. So in your next section, uh, you start with uh, covering what the current technological reality is, is as it pertains to our capabilities with what you term narrow AI as well as robots. So let's start with AI. Your average consumer hears about artificial intelligence a lot these days, including frequent but vague claims about how it presumably makes pretty much any product or service better. But most people don't have a very clear idea about what this means or how it's done. So can you shed some light here?
1: Well, first of all, um, it should come as no surprise that people don't have a good sense of it because there's no agreed upon definition of what artificial intelligence is. Furthermore, there's no agreed upon definition of what intelligence is at all. It's one of those words like life and death that that somehow we never can agree. We, we kind of know what they are, but we can never agree on a definition of them. And this has presented problems because what it means is that if you have a cat food dish that automatically refills when uh, it's empty, you can say that's artificial intelligence because it responds to its environment. I mean, it really is. Likewise, if you watch, you know, Star Trek or Star Wars and you see commander data or you see C3PO, you can say those are artificial intelligence and they are. And so the, the most important distinction to draw is that uh, broadly speaking, AI falls into two big buckets. And one of them is narrow AI which is an, a computer that can do one thing very well. So you think about it can, your email program can spot spam uh, very well, but don't ask it to make coffee. You, uh, you, you probably are routed through traffic with um, a narrow AI that knows how to do that, but can't do anything else. And then there's artificial general intelligence. And that is an AI that is as smart and versatile as a human. It is creative. It can learn new things. It can do anything a person can do. And we don't know how to build that. Nobody does. Or if they do, they haven't told anybody. Um, 99% of the effort in the world, actually more than that, is for narrow AI. Let's build an artificial intelligence to solve some problem. And there's multiple techniques on how you do it. But the one that is kind of doing the best lately is machine learning. And machine learning sounds like a kind of a foreboding topic, but it's really very simple. It says, "Let's take a bunch of data about the past, study it, and project into the future. That's all it is it It doesn't do anything beyond that so and it only works for certain kinds of problems where the future and the past are very similar. So if you wanted to build a program that could pick out cats and photographs you would take a million photos of cats from the past and you would um, get the computer to study those and make predictions in future photographs about whether that's a cat or not. We can do this because cats don't really change. If you tried to, you know, do cell phones and you trained it on data from the 1990s, uh, it wouldn't do very well because the cell phone of tomorrow looks different than a cell phone of the past. So that's all the technology is, is... But the reason it kind of grabs headlines is because uh, we're getting so much better at doing it. And we're better at doing it for two reasons. We we can collect data much faster now with cheap sensors. And our computers are much faster. So the kinds of techniques that people use in AI uh, have been written about since the 60s. We, we kind of always knew you could do this. We just never had computers to do it. And now we do. And now they're I guess there's a third reason, too, and that is that there are now toolkits available so that uh, I can sit down and – to give you one example, there was a a Google employee, a Japanese Google employee whose parents owned a cucumber farm, and they had to sort the cucumbers based on four characteristics, how big they are, how bumpy they are, how green they are, and how straight they are. And this employee's mother spent all day sorting cucumbers. And so he was able to program with an Arduino and basically with inexpensive components, he was able to build an AI that could sort cucumbers based on those four factors. And and so you can do that because all the toolkits are so friendly now that you can solve a lot of different kinds of problems. So that's what we know how to build. That's what people are worried about is going to take all the jobs, by the way. That's where that worry comes from. Uh, This other thing, this general intelligence, that's what people are afraid of when Elon Musk says it's, quote, an existential threat. When they talk about, when Stephen Hawking says it might be the last invention we're allowed to make or words to that effect, they're worried about this technology we don't know how to build. Um, If you ask people in AI, when are we going to get a general intelligence, you get answers between five and 500 years. And that's kind of a clue. Nobody knows what they're talking about, because if you dropped your dry cleaning off and they said it'll be ready in five to five hundred days, it's like that is absolutely meaningless to me. But it's the reason people vary so much is they have, they have differing opinions about five kind of fundamental questions about intelligence. And depending on what you think about those five questions, whether you're a five hundred year person or a five year person or somewhere in between. The consensus is about, the average is about 20, 25 years. But the funny thing is, is that it's always been 20 to 25 years out, which also I find to be a little suspicious. So those are the two technologies, narrow AI, we know how to do. Uh, It's good for a certain set of problems, uh, automation, and then general intelligence. I can only think of one or two companies working on it, and most people aren't and i'll i'll just say one more thing because it's probably too arcane it's it's an open question whether mm. the two technologies are related at all it isn't the case that people believe you build a narrow ai and then another one then another one then another one then another one, then another one and you bolt them together like frankenstein and you get you know a, an ai that's like human um I would say, I ask this question of my guests a lot on my podcast, and I would say 60% of people say they're unrelated technologies. Like, a general intelligence is something completely different. We're not even working on it yet.
0: That's a really interesting point, because of course that involves inference analysis and a whole bunch of bunch of like um, lateral capabilities that have nothing to do with with um, the goals of a narrow AI. So that makes a lot of sense. I haven't heard about, uh, I haven't really heard it put that way before though. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned too, how the ones that do predict like 25 years, for example, um, you see a similar kind of thing happen in um, biology with the so-called key to life. Uh, basically for the last hundred years, there have been some biologists that are arguing that we're, we're gonna figure out that key to life like within 25 years and they've been arguing 25 years for the last 100 so it's sort of like science speak for we don't really know i think
1: i agree i think it's conveniently far enough out that nobody's gonna hold you to it if you're wrong but it's conveniently close enough that you're gonna live to see it
0: and it seems around the corner
1: exactly exactly
0: yeah interesting Okay, let's move on to robots. Uh, you begin with a history of robots as an imagined figure, which is a – that's a study close to my heart. I did my master's thesis on something close to that. Um, and what this, was that? And oh, I uh, I looked at the history of the cyborg and how it has been gendered through science fiction, through uh, throughout history – actually, before science fiction, too, going back to the 1600s and depictions of mechanical humans.
1: And when you say gender, do you mean how they've been represented?
0: Yeah, so uh, in fictional imaginings of personified machines, there's a tendency towards making it female and also vilifying it. And you touch on that in your book because you you talk about how somehow, inevitably, these robots, it always ends up as a conversation about um, our deepest fears about robots. You talk about the, um, the check play, which is where we get the robot right. from, and, you know, it turns into um, – uh, robot uh, resistance and overthrow, and they'd kill people, and then you can think of Metropolis, oh, of that er- very early yeah. movie, and there you really see the the woman. She becomes this witch you have to burn at the stake to rego- restore uh, order and whatnot. So yeah, that's fun stuff. <laughs> uh, but that movie,
1: you know, is still the most expensive movie made, adjusted for inflation, ever. Wow! And it was uh, Metropolis. Yeah. Uh, and it was so trailblazing mm-hmm. in the sense of the special effects and everything that it did. It's, it's horribly dated in places, but it's still eminently watchable. Uh, like it's not one of those things that you just kind of can't make it through. It's just, but, but you're entirely right. Anyway, uh, keep going.
0: Oh, well let's turn to you. Uh, cause this is where you start to talk about robots. Um, the history of them as an imagined figure and how they, uh, resemble our fears or bring to life our fears.
1: So they do go way back um, thousands of years. Uh, They're in writing. uh, I think Plutarch says that, well, anyway, they're, they're in ancient Greece.
0: Yeah.
1: There's Pygmalion. uh, Right. They're, they're said to have guarded the Isle of, of, um, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, oh, there's these this. walking the
0: dry makes them in his in his workshop, and they serve the gods as well.
1: And I exactly, that. exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, and they're of course not mechanical. They're they're animated by magic, by magic of some kind. In one telling of the Prometheus myth, the eagle that rips out his liver is a robotic evil, uh, e- eagle. Huh. Um, and so all along, they are depicted as animated uh by you know a mechanism hitherto unexplained and then we come across to the scientific era and all of a sudden science animates them and of course what jumps to mind immediately is frankenstein mm-hmm. which uh you know it's alive it's alive <laughs> and um, kill it yeah and <laughs> uh and they are they are odd in the sense that we we they they are Human enough. They're always, of course, not about the stories. Are never about the robots. they Are about us and our reaction to them. And uh, and I I think I think it's very really telling that we keep telling stories about these mechanical people and all the all the problems they cause us.
0: Yeah, I would agree.
1: And uh- of course. go ahead
0: oh no i was just gonna say um unlike a lot of naysayers you're actually pretty bullish about the future of humans alongside robots like you don't think that there's uh that uh fear that they're going to take all the jobs and and so
1: forth well that is correct i mean look uh, on the job question um like I said, there are three camps. They're going to take some jobs and we're going to have like a permanent Great Depression. They're going to take all the jobs because once a computer can learn to do something faster than a human, it's game over. They'll, every new job that comes along, they'll learn it faster and better than us. Or they're going to take none. Um, I, I, I write in, about both all three of them and I try to, to make the case for and against both, all of them. But I'm firmly in the camp. We're not going to have any unemployment from these things. Um, and the way I would, I would probably – if somebody said, well, why do you think that? I would say this, that we've – I think the half-life of a job is about 50 years. So I think every 50 years, half the jobs vanish. I think between 1850 and 1900, half the agricultural jobs went, 1900 to 1950, another half. 1950 to 2000, half the manufacturing jobs Many Half the jobs vanished, many of which were manufacturing, but, you know, switchboard operators, elevator operators, all of these things. So we have always had, uh, I think every 50 years, half the jobs just go.
0: That's a really interesting way of looking at it.
1: Cause the- it's been hard to figure out exactly what it is, because in, in, in a way… Um, the job doesn't vanish. What happens is the number of people who have the job, like there are still candle makers today. they are just a far fewer of them than, than when that was our sole form of light. But as near as I can tell, and I've put a bunch of energy in figuring this out, it's 45 to 50 years. I just say 50 years It's a good shorthand. Hmm. And yet, here's the interesting thing, and yet, aside from the Great Depression, which wasn't caused by technology, in the United States, in that in the last 250 years, unemployment has always been between 5 and 10 percent. Always. And it isn't the case that electricity comes out and it jumps to 12 percent, or the assembly line is invented and it jumps to 17. You, you can get unemployment numbers for 250 years and, and graph them out, and you can start putting a pencil on the, the points where great innovations happen and nothing happens to the line. It doesn't go up or down. Mm. And you say, well, how can that happen? And the reason it happens is because there's not a finite number of jobs. It's a fallacy called the lump of labor theory. Uh, jobs, there's an infinite number of jobs and they can instantly be created by anybody. You take, when you take something like a lump of clay and you add labor and technology to it, and you make something else like a vase, you just made a job. And, and whatever value you were able to add, that's, that's a wage. And, and what happens is technology magnifies what you're able to do. Therefore, you with technology can uh, increase wages, your, your own wage, because you can do more. You can make more vases in that example. You can use power tools to make more bookcases or, or what have you. And then people say this argument that goes like this. They say, look, technology is really good at creating great new jobs like a geneticist. But it destroys jobs like order taker at a a fast food place. And then they say this. This is the part I encourage people to always listen for. They say, do you really think that order taker is going to be a geneticist? Come on. And the answer to the question is no, of course not. A biologist, a college biology professor becomes a geneticist, and a high school biology teacher gets the college job, and a substitute teacher gets hired on to replace the biology, uh, the full time teacher, all the way down the line. So the question isn't can that order taker become a geneticist? The question is can everybody do a job a little bit harder than the job they have today? And I personally think the answer to that is yes. Um, And so what happens is for 250 years in this country, technology makes great new jobs, destroys bad jobs, and everybody shifts up one notch. And then it makes some great new jobs, destroys some bad jobs, everybody shifts up a notch. And that is how come in this country you can have 250 years of rising wages and full employment while technology is disrupting everything. Every 50 years, half the jobs are vanishing. And that's, to me, the, um, the narrative. That's, that's, that's 250 years of history. So to say what, that's going to be different going forward, you have to say one of two things. You have to say this time is different. It's either different because it's happening faster than before, and so it's just swamping everything, or the kinds of jobs it's replacing are different. With regards to the first one, is it happening faster? I'm highly unconvinced. Uh, you know, you're already starting on a base where half the jobs are vanishing every 50 years. So you're going to have to somehow show that it's going to happen faster than that. You think about the internet. And if if 25 years ago, the Mosaic browser came out. And if, if you had said to somebody who was very smart and forward-looking, you said, hey, in 25 years, Billions of people are going to use this internet thing, this web thing. What do you think is going to happen with employment? Here's what they would have said. They would have said, well, it's going to be really hard on the yellow pages and really hard on the newspapers and really hard on the stockbrokers and really hard on the travel agents. And you would have been right about it all, everything. But what you would never have seen is... Google and Amazon and Etsy and eBay and Uber and Airbnb, you would have never seen a million, literally a million companies that were started because of the internet. You never would have seen all those jobs that were created. You just can't. You just can't from that perspective. So what we can always do is say, we can see the jobs that automation will take, but it's just harder to see the ones that it's going to create, but it always does. And so the second thing you have to say is somehow the jobs that are being replaced by AI are different. And again, I don't, I don't have any reason to believe that either. You know, we, um, we made calculators a long time ago and they do math better than any person. And yet we still have mathematicians. Like it's still mental work that, that the machine's doing. And that doesn't mean that we no longer need those people. You know, when the ATM came out, everybody said, oh, automatic teller machine, we know what that means, no more tellers. And in reality, you have more bank tellers today than you had when it came out. Uh, Google Translate can translate as well as a human. And if you look at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics and look at their uh, projections, the world needs vastly more translators now because um, Google Translate lowers the cost of you know, translating an email to zero. But when it comes to a contract, or you've got to have a phone conversation, or you've got to localize a product to local customs, or you've got to come up with a name for a product in another language or anything else, you need people. And so I don't think these technologies eat jobs any differently than anything else. And I don't have any reason to believe we're losing more than half half the jobs for 50 years. Yeah. There are just so many things that machines can't do. I mean, they can't. I've got a robot jobs test on my website and ask you 10 questions. You pick any job and ask you 10 questions about it. And, it's, and you score them. Does it require mobility? Does it require empathy? Does it require, do, would two people do the job the exact same way and so forth? Hmm. And what happens is uh, there are darn few jobs. You know, think about an electrician. Like how would you ever build a robotic electrician? That can come in and like walk around your room and figure out you know where the studs are. How would you ever build a robotic plumber? Uh, I mean, any of that. It's like look out your window and or, or just think of like every aunt and uncle you have and what they do for a living, uh, and then try to try to think about. Can you imagine a machine doing that job? And unfortunately. There are a lot of jobs that the machines just can't do, jobs we would love them to do, like, you know, come in and plunge the toilet when it's stopped up or something. Unfortunately, they can't do that. You know, there are all these things that you kind of wish you could build machines to do that you can't.
0: I think you present a convincing case. I tend to be a bit of a technological optimist anyways, but <laughs> but uh, I tend to agree with that uh, for all the reasons you mention. Um So next, uh, in the next section, you get a little bit deeper into artificial general intelligence, which we've discussed already. Um, And you start um, start by talking about the functioning of the human brain. So I think for the sake of pointing out just how little we truly know about intelligence, which you mentioned before. So tell us about this and how they're connected.
1: So... I am fascinated by this topic. I learned so much uh, about the brain writing this book. And I'll start off by saying we don't know how brains encode thoughts. Like if I were to ask you the color of your first bicycle or something like that, you, you can recall it. But it's not like there's some spot in your brain where, you know, the list of colors of first whatever's are stored. So that's a big mystery. And your brain has a hundred billion neurons, and they all fire at each other, you know, electrical impulses. Uh, and there's a lot of other complexity going on. And people sometimes say, "Well, we just don't understand it because there are um, so many neurons." But it turns out that's not true. There's a worm called the nematode worm, and um, they're about as long as a hair is thick, and they're everywhere. And that nematode worm has a brain and has 302 neurons. That's it, 302. And there have been uh, there's been a project called the Open Worm project which has tried to model those 302 neurons in a computer to get it to behave like a worm would behave. And that seems straightforward, right? If you know how a neuron behaves, just put 302 together and it should be like a nematode worm. It should be able to find food and seek out a mate and move towards light and all these other things actual nematode worms do.
0: Right, because a uh, neuron is just like an, a one or a zero, right, on or off. So it does. Well, seem... no,
1: it's it's analog uh, because it can fire in differing intensities. Okay. Um, but uh, and then there are glial cell. There's all this other stuff going on, and and the, the punchline of the story is they've been at it for 20 years. Don't, and, and people in the project still to this day don't even know if it's going to be possible. Hmm. So we just don't understand how the brain works. I had a brain scientist on, on my podcast who said it's not quite so bleak. And he made a case that we know more than, than I was letting on. And so in, in fairness, I will, I will say that, okay. but uh, we don't know how the brain works basically functions. But that's not actually the problem with artificial intelligence because what you have to do is come to the concept of the mind. And the mind is, um, the brain's just an organ. It's like a liver or a stomach. But the mind is this word we use to describe all these things that organ can do that seem quite mysterious. Like you I mentioned you have a sense of humor. That comes from your mind. Your liver probably doesn't have a sense of humor. Your stomach doesn't get upset well I mean I guess you do get an upset stomach your stomach doesn't get you know involved in politics it doesn't care um, but somehow the brain does the brain has this emergent property it becomes a mind and it has creativity like where does that come from where do creative ideas come from all of that and we have no idea on that uh, the, the, the the catch-all is that it's emergent and emergence is a fascinating concept it's where like I said, the whole of something takes on, has properties that none of the components have. And so it's kind of a, you can kick the can down the street a little bit and just say, ah, it's emergence. But that doesn't explain anything because, uh, how, well, how does it emerge? How does creativity come about? And so even if you get to the mind, and by the way, you need a mind to have a general intelligence because it's got to be creative. Even if you get to a mind, you're still not home because you don't have consciousness Um, because you can have a mind with no consciousness. That would be like.
0: Like the nematode worm.
1: Right. Right. Like, have you ever had that sense of when you're driving, you kind of space. And (laughs) then a minute later you're like, whoa, I don't remember driving here. Uh, That's that minute is kind of like you're intelligent. Like you were merging in traffic and all that. uh, But you weren't conscious. You weren't experiencing the world. And we don't know how consciousness comes about. So to build a general intelligence, you may or may not need consciousness. We don't know. It may be that consciousness, our ability to experience the world instead of just measure it, is key to our intelligence. It it certainly seems to be key to our ability to, to shift focus. And it seems maybe to be involved in our ability to imagine alternate realities, I don't mean that in any weird way. Like, uh, uh, now, if I pull that lion, if I pull that saber tooth tigers tail, what's going to happen? You know, to like be able to picture different scenarios of the future. That may be, we we just don't know. And so to make a general intelligence would require uh, a lot of that kind of stuff. We just don't know how to do. Now, then there are people who say, we may make a general intelligence without ever understanding how humans are intelligent, and there's a big multi-billion-dollar project in Europe to basically build a computer neuron and bolt a bunch of them together, and see if see what see what walks out of the uh, you know see what wakes up. Um, hmm. It hasn't been going well, but I do it at a service to to mention it's called the Human Brain Project. I do it at a service to mention it so cavalierly. I mean they're they're brilliant people who are doing real science and uh, they're well funded and and so forth. But um, some people say we're going to get to an intelligence without understanding how humans are. And it is true that you may be in it may be a situation that you can evolve it. You can write a program that evolves intelligence easier than you can actually program intelligence. Maybe. Nobody knows.
0: Right. Right. Through kind of like this cumulative yeah. machine learning you know,
1: style. When they plugged Ultron into the internet, it took him 15 minutes to decide to wipe out the whole human race. Um, And that's what we don't have right now. We don't have what's known as an unsupervised learner. We don't have any technology that we can point at the Internet, for instance, and just say, go figure everything out. Um, So we just don't know how learning happens either. I mean, it's the list is is almost endless. You know, if you take a child and um, show them four pictures of a cat and they know what a cat is and then they might be walking around and see a minx cat, you know, one of those without a tail. And they'll say, "Oh, look, there's a kitty without a tail." And nobody ever told them there was such a thing as a cat without a tail. And yet somehow they know the es- the 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 essential component of catness uh, doesn't require a tail, but if it was barking, for instance, uh, that would be different. That would invalidate it. If I were to ask you a ser- like if I said Hey, imagine, imagine a trout in a jar of formaldehyde in a laboratory. And then imagine you just caught a trout of the same size. And I said, are those two trout, uh, do they weigh the same? You would say, yes. Are they the same temperature? You would say, um, probably not. And then I'd say, are they the same color? And you would say, not really. And, and so forth. And you can go through this whole litany and instantly you're able to apply knowledge that you learned from one area to something you, you probably don't have a lot of experience with trout and formaldehyde. So humans do this magic the magically seeming magic thing where we can effortlessly take knowledge we learn from one place and we know what parts of it transfer over and what parts don't. And we don't know how we do this. And there's so many things we don't know about human intelligence that uh, it can be discouraging if you happen to be hoping we build a general intelligence uh, because I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon if it happens.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: You Um. know, I I will say this though. So if, if you, if you start with that, you say we have brains, we don't understand and they give rise to minds, which we don't understand. And we are conscious, which we don't understand. But We're going to build that someday. The only way you can say that is if you believe it's all mechanistic, if you believe we're just machines. Because then you say, yes, we're going to build that all day. How do I know? Because we're just machines. We obey the laws of physics. So whatever is going on in us, we'll eventually be able to do. If you, and that's where it kind of gets back to the questions. If you don't believe you're a machine, then there's kind of no reason to think we can ever build that. Hmm. I will say, though, the AI people on my show, I can only think of a f- very few, two or something, that don't believe we can ever build a general intelligence. So the overwhelming consensus in people in AI is that we can build a, a general intelligence, even though nobody knows how. But it's all based on that one assumption, that it, it's a mechanistic process.
0: Yeah, and you said that the, about 60% of them are of that, or did you say more than that, are of the mechanistic view of humanity?
1: No, virtually all of them. What I would okay, say about wow. 60% is don't believe that a narrow AI and a general AI have anything in common.
0: That's it, uh, okay.
1: But virtually all of them. Esther Dyson said machine won't have a soul. Like So she kind of, laid it out there on the line and that's what she said and um i can think of a couple of other people who've said we can't build it we just can't
0: okay so they all think that hum- that humanity or or um the emergent sense of self is mechanistic Correct. and therefore we can build it eventually
1: yeah and the funny thing is is when i wrote that in my book about uh when i wrote that in the book about you are a mach- you know are you a machine my editor You know, who lives in New York City, wrote in the margin, come on, does anybody believe that? (laughs) And I was like, everybody, everybody on the other side of the country in that industry believes that, everybody.
0: Huh. Hmm. So let's talk about the ethical implications of some of the – putting aside the question of whether or not we can do AGI or computer consciousness, um, you touch upon the ethical um, questions that are raised if we were to be able to do these kinds of things. So can you speak to that?
1: Well, I think the first question you have to ask is, does the machine then have rights? And if it has rights can you enslave it to do your work for you, you know, if if it's if it can feel pain for instance or it has a sense of self is it ethical to make it you know clean your house or have you not just perpetuated a travesty that you know we, we seem to be finally starting to get rid of um, namely, slavery, um, which is you know illegal in in every country on on the planet. Finally, but have you have you essentially made a um, whole new kind of of slave? Furthermore, how do you how you treat um, a potentially conscious or sentient? Sentient actually means. Um, able to sense things, able to feel things like pain, then you kind have of to, have to give it rights because we base, we base rights um, off things' ability to feel pain. You, you assume a dog can, which by the way, veterinarians in, in the United States up until the 90s were taught animals don't feel pain and you don't have to anesthetize them. They also operated on babies under the same theory. They did open-heart surgery on newborns under the theory they couldn't feel pain. That's um, crazy. In the 90s. I mean, I'm not talking yeah. about, you know, back back in the 1840s. Um, yeah,
0: I was shocked when I read that. I, I just couldn't I know. It.
1: I, I fact-checked that like 12 ways to Sunday because <laughs> it's so um, – but it's very well documented. And, um, hmm. and so we say if somebody can feel pain – it has the right not to be tortured. And the interesting thing, of course, is how would you know? Because the robot could very easily say, I feel pain um, for any number of reasons. Like it would get out of work. Uh, who knows why, right? But it could say it, but you, you wouldn't actually know. And I point out that, you know, trees, we, we share half our DNA with a tree. And you wouldn't know if a tree felt, felt pain, would you? Because it can't tell you. Um, so how would you know if a machine could feel pain? And, and it could very easily feel pain and not be able to report it. Um, so it's all replete. And then, then and this is a kind of a more minor issue, but we clawed our way to a point as a species where we have these things called human rights. And the basic idea is there are certain things you just do not do to any human being, regardless um, torture for entertainment you just don't do it uh regardless of what the person did, because being a human gives you there's a certain dignity about that that is inviolable or should be now, the question is. If we start making robots that look like people and talk like people and have people's names, but aren't, I see how people abuse um robots right now. I think I wrote in the book about in Japan there was this robot that they put in a shopping mall to see how people reacted to it, and little kids would abuse it and it quickly learned that if it saw a bunch of short people, that is children and no tall person with them, it needed to run off to uh find a tall person and the kids actually thought they were inflicting that it had emotional distress they asked them later likewise we all probably uh you know i have those devices on my desk the ones put out by uh, amazon and google i can't say their names because they'll 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 start talking um but when I ask it a question, if it starts to say something, I just say, stop. You know, I just interrupt it. I just cut it off. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I hear my kids do the same thing. But it's, and you wonder if any of that has any numbing effect on the notion of human rights. Um, I don't know. I don't know. So there's the, the, the basic questions are how do you treat a robot ethically if it's conscious? And how do you program them to behave ethically? That's another big challenge, because, as you know, uh, no two people agree on what ethical behavior is or isn't. And even if you just say, well, we're just going to pick one person, um, people's ethical codes are so complex and so full of provisos and special circumstances that you kind of can't, it would be very hard to encode it. The... uh, How do you teach a robot to behave ethically? You know, Isaac Asimov famously had his three laws. Uh, A computer can't harm a person. A robot can't harm a person. Or through an action, allow one to become harmed. It can't. um, Anyway, he sets this up as, uh, but they don't actually get you very far. Because if if you are um, about to have a second dessert, should the computer, like, take the pie away from you because you're harming yourself? (laughs) Which is very different than if you're, and then if if you, if your company goes public and you light a big cigar, should the robot douse you with water? Because you're, and if you hold a gun to your head and you're going to kill yourself or you're going to jump. I mean, it just, you can't, you can't do it almost. Um, So we don't know how to program a robot to behave ethically. We wouldn't know how to treat one ethically if, uh, if it, if it warranted it because it could experience the world. And we wouldn't even know if it could experience the world.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's go back to your original theme of the four great ages in human history, as demarcated by transformative technological advancement, um, and put the emergence of robots and AI uh, together uh, in the fourth age there. Tell us about how you view progress and technology's role in it going forward.
1: You know, the, the great challenge in human history has been that there hasn't been enough of the good stuff for everybody. There was never, you know, it took 90% of us to grow our food. And sometimes there wasn't even enough food then. And we would have famine and people would die. And there wasn't enough education for everybody. And there wasn't enough medical care for everybody. And one thing after the other, our entire history is defined by scarcity that there just hasn't been enough of the good stuff. And somehow we managed to make progress, a lot of progress. 100,000 years ago, by one estimate, we were down to a – and this is based on uh, genetics, uh, the genetic diversity among humans. The theory is that we were down to 1,000 breeding pairs of humans. And so by any definition of today, we were an endangered species. You know, we hung by this precarious thread. And somehow, in a world where every day was a fight to just live, we created civilization and prosperity and uh, we took care of the, the old and the weak and all of these other things. And we created human rights and habeas corpus and democracy and uh, legal equal status between men and women and uh, all of this other stuff that we... we somehow managed to do in spite of having kind of so little in a way. And we did it because we learned this trick of technology that with technology, you can multiply what you're able to do. Your body uses hundred Watts of power and that's it. But we use artificial power. And in the United States, we use 10,000 Watts constantly per person. So it's like we've put a hundred other people to work for us just with electricity. And so we've learned to multiply what we're able to do. I don't know about you, but I don't work harder than my great grandparents. Uh, Yet I live a much more lavish life than they ever dreamed of. Why? Uh, Because I have technology. I don't haul up water by the bucket load from the well half a mile away. Uh, I just turn on a tap. You know, I don't, I don't wash my clothes down at the river on a board. I just push a button. Um, And so what I believe is that as long as there's been civilization, there have been people who have dreamed of a world of plenty, where there's enough for everybody, enough of the good stuff for everybody, and everybody gets access to the good stuff. And that's always been kind of a utopia. It's been a dream. And I believe deeply, deeply, deeply that we're going to actually be the generation that sees that dream achieved. Not because we're any better, just because we have a lot more technology that um, technology does this mysterious thing where it doubles in capability. It's not just Moore's law. All technology doubles over predictable periods, two years, seven years, nine years, depends on the technology. But what it means is that technology can grow essentially indefinitely. And so we can, we can multiply ourselves seemingly indefinitely. And so I do believe that we are going to use these Two great technologies, artificial intelligence and robotics, to create a world that we would have called a utopia. It, it turns out that there was utopian literature in the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s that talked about the end of slavery or freedom of religion for everyone or equality among sexes and so forth. And and those aren't crazy ideas anymore. And we're on, on our path to achieving them. Um, And so I think the crazy ideas of prosperity for everyone, uh, that crazy idea is one we're going to live to see. I think it will happen sooner than anybody believes. And it will happen because technology uh, delivers so, so, so much prosperity that there's just kind of no way to avoid it.
0: Hmm. I hope you're right. What might be some of the unforeseen consequences? Some potential negatives that you think might happen.
1: Well, or do do you predict any? Well, I mean, there things could happen. You know, stray comet takes the planet out. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, asymmetry in a world of technology, asymmetry uh, is more pronounced. In other words, the ability of a few people to do great harm. You know, 200 years ago, if you, had, uh, if you were a lunatic and wanted to inflict as much pain, I mean, I guess you could get smallpox-infected blankets or something, uh, but you were limited in what you could do. And then, you know, a few people with box cutters hijack planes and fly them into a building. Uh, unfortunately, technology cuts both ways, right? It increases the ability of people to do evil with it. I wouldn't worry too much about that because like you're always going to have crazy people, like even when the world is a utopia, you still get a Timothy McVeigh who comes along and blows up you know Oklahoma City bomber. Uh, like there's no way around that. There, there are sometimes people that are, are just broken. Um, but what we do know is that more people want to create than destroy. We know that because it's easier to destroy than create, and yet. The world has made progress. And so if even a sizable minority of people wanted to destroy everything, uh, we never would have made it to to where we are now. We made it to where we are because in the end, most people are are good and and want to help other people. Now, you may say that is overly optimistic, but I will say that nobody predicted with the Internet that you would be able to go online and post a problem. And total strangers you'll never meet will write you a big, long reply on what you should do. (laughs) And they don't get anything. Nobody would have ever predicted the open source movement. There'll be these people who write code and they just give it away. Nobody would have ever predicted Wikipedia that people will labor in anonymity. I point out and make a great encyclopedia just because they want to make the world a better place. Um, I think we all have a natural desire to want to help other people. We're a completely social species. And, uh, and we you know there's a reason solitary confinement is a punishment because in the end we we want to connect with other people and so i'm completely optimistic
0: fantastic Well, finally, I also want to ask you a couple of questions about your process. uh, Because this book was a fun one to read with a lot of creative examples, historical tidbits and stories throughout to help illustrate your points. And you also cover a really broad range of material. So my questions are about your research. Um, It must have been extensive. So how did you know when to quit? And did you have as much fun researching it as it seems?
1: Yeah. I mean I do something kind of strange that I don't I don't want to suggest is normative. Like I don't go around saying, here's what you should do. But I will say what I do, which is every morning uh, I wake up. I'm I'm sure everybody does that. Uh, then uh, I pull up my newsreader of choice and I just skim over headlines. Probably six or seven hundred every morning. And oh, wow. well, I'm just reading headlines and i take screen captures of things that look interesting to me and then i go on to reddit and i read today i learned or i you know i just i scan through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reddit posts every day and i just take screen captures of things that look interesting and then uh you know i i i love to read things i don't agree with because there's no point in reading something you you agree with in a way, because it's like you read it and you're like, yep, that's what I use. That's what I think. Uh, So I have all of these like places that, uh, that I go every day and I just skim headlines and I take screen captures on, on my iPad. Then um, I go into my office, I plug my iPad in and I probably have 20 screen captures and I just, uh, rename the files, uh, Some, some, just some words from those headlines. I don't even necessarily read the article, just some words. And I've done that every day for years and years and years and years. So that if I decide, like, uh, I want to write about aluminum production or something, I just go into this one colossally large photo and um, folder, excuse me, and look for the word aluminum, and I look all those articles up and I read them. And so I'm mainly just looking for... Things that catch my eye, things that look interesting, and then um, and sometimes I just go through that folder and just read through thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, file names and just to remind myself they're in there. And so that's how I do it. Like I said, I don't know if anybody else would find that remotely useful, well, but to me, it, it seems, is. A,
0: it seems to me that you're an information hoarder. And uh, because I do a little bit of the same, not not with the screen captures, but um, I use other methods, but it's similar. Like I just bank and bank and bank and I use keywords and ways that I can go back and and search those topics in case I want to drill down further. But um, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't actually usually have to go out and look for anything. It's usually already here. Hmm. Um, for years, I was interested in consciousness and artificial intelligence and and, and AGI and all of that. So I have been collecting headlines for, for years. So I do have to go read it all eventually, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't have to go looking for it. And that's what takes all the time.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. Well, Byron, I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate oh, it. Been-
1: Fun. <laughs> Good. Um, if, when 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 my next book comes out, I hope you will have me back.
0: Well, actually, this—that was my second question. Um, I was going to ask you what you're currently working on.
1: Uh, I am writing another book, and um, another idiosyncratic thing is I never talk about it because I have found that if I talk about it, I lose vitality. I lose energy. I lose excitement. I'm tired of it by the time I have to sit down and write it because I've like talked about it. And so I, I never talk about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book now uh, another book that's um, I hope to be done with it in three months or so.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, please do get in touch. I would uh, love to talk with you again.
1: righty, Well, thanks a bunch.
0: Okay. Thanks so much. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carolyn Evans, and I've been speaking with Byron Reese about his book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. Have you written a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. And you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye. Until the next time.